of the oh, 142nd session of the Aristotelian Society and the first I've chaired, so go gentle with me. Um, it's my very great pleasure this evening to welcome Professor Heather Widows. Heather is the John Ferguson Professor of Global Ethics at the University of Birmingham and has also recently been appointed as Pro Vice Chancellor for Research and Knowledge Exchange at the University. She's also Deputy Chair of the REF 2021 Philosophy Subpanel, on which we've been working together, so it's nice to be spending some time today doing philosophy instead. Heather's research is in the areas of global ethics, feminist philosophy and philosophy of health and bioethics. As well as an edited volume and many papers, she has published four monographs, The Moral Vision of Iris Murdoch in 20, uh, 2005, Global Ethics and Introduction in 2011, The Connected Self, The Ethics and Governance of the Genetic Individual in 2013, and most recently, Perfect Me, Beauty as an Ethical Ideal in 2018. Her paper today relates to that book and is entitled No Duty to Resist, Why Individual Resistance is an Ineffective Response to Dominant Beauty Ideals. Please join me in welcoming Heather. Okay, so I hope you can all see the right screen. Lauren, I can see you, so yeah, thank you. Um, so a real pleasure to be here and um, as Bob said we've been spending an awful lot of time doing a lot of admin together so it's an utter pleasure not to be doing admin today and not to be doing my day job which is also a lot of admin and actually to spend a couple of hours talking about philosophy and about ideas that I really care about. So in this paper I'm going to as Bob says go back to an argument that I thought I made imperfect me, but that I, I didn't, or at least not quite in the way I'm going to do it today. So there I argued that the way to counter dominant beauty norms was not to focus on what individuals do and don't do to their own bodies, but instead to focus on culture change and shared action. However, that resistance should be at the individual level remains a wildly head view in philosophical circles, although interestingly less so in some other academic circles. But while the view is widespread, it is often unassumed, it is often assumed rather than explicitly argued for. And indeed, one is hard pressed to find detailed arguments in the literature for why individuals should resist, and whether this is a duty or sometimes perhaps a tactic, which is intended to reduce the power of a social norm. So today, I will deny that resistance is a duty which individuals have, and I will also suggest that it is not a tactic which is likely to be effective. So let me first make two scene setting points. So the first one, and to anybody who knows my work will be very obvious, but if you don't, I think it's important that I'm very clear that I do think the dominant beauty ideal is harmful, very harmful, more so than previous ideals. And these are arguments that I make at length and perfect me. It is precisely because I do worry about the harms of an increasingly demanding and dominant and importantly global beauty ideal that I began working on bodies and beauty. The consequences of a normalised, naturalised, highly modified body are truly devastating. Already this is true for many, particularly the young, 
and if current trends continue, it will be for all. So my argument is not that there is nothing wrong, there is an awful lot wrong, but it is that there is no individual duty to resist and that promoting this will be an ineffective response. Second, when I use words like beauty practices, I am including the whole range of adornment and body modification practices, from face and body painting to injectables, treatments, what they call in the popular press tweakments and surgeries. At times in this paper, especially when I'm returning to old second wave debates, the makeup will be a very dominant example, but I'm using it much more broadly, thinking about everything from hair removal, eyebrow tattooing, fake tan, and cosmetic surgery. So in this paper then, I will reject the claim that there is an individual duty to resist, much more systematically than I did in Perfect Me. Because this argument is not well set out in the literature, I will seek to recreate the view as one which likely derives from broader second wave feminist arguments. The second wave feminist activist response to how we should respond to demanding appearance ideals was that women should simply stop engaging. It was grounded in the thought that once women understood that focusing on appearance and engaging in practices to improve it was a means to keep them in their subordinate place, they would just stop worrying about appearance and spending time on it. They would reject such practices as worthless and oppressive, and presumably by doing this, they would encourage others and so reduce the power of the norm. These arguments derived from a particular moment of the women's liberation movement. Therefore, while mentioned in the broader literature, they are not articulated and are often underdeveloped and untested. So I will seek to make plain the assumptions and implications of these arguments and show that there is no duty to resist and as a response to beauty ideals, it is ineffective. The just resist approach divides women into groups in a way which undermines collective action it invokes shame and blame in a particularly destructive way, and it increases attention on appearance and the body rather than reducing it, negatively affecting all of us, whether or not we engage. I will conclude that there is no duty to resist, nor will advocating individual resistance challenge the dominance of the ideal. So these are two connected but separable claims. For instance, you might disagree with my rejection of an individual duty, and yet accept the second claim that this is an ineffective tactic to reduce the power of the ideal. So for much of the argument, both claims run together. I am merely flagging this as a possible response. My own argument is both that individuals do not have a duty to resist, nor is promoting individual resistance an effective way to reduce the power of appearance norms. I argue it would be better to reject this line of thought altogether. We should move away from focusing on what individuals do or don't do to their own bodies. <clears throat> so I begin with the false consciousness analysis as one of the ways in which you could reconstruct the argument and ground a claim that there is a duty to resist. So there are very many versions of false consciousness, all of which provides an analysis of how one class dominates another in systems of hierarchical power relations. False consciousness explains how the subordinate class, despite having the numbers or means to resist, are compliant and accept their subordinated status. Those suffering from false consciousness are deluded or mistaken about their position. 
Not only do they fail to see their disadvantage, but they may even believe they benefit, defend the status quo and resist change. The solution to false consciousness is to make the subordinated class aware of their status and reveal the reality of the power dynamics. The assumption is that once consciousness is raised, the subordinated class will see the delusion that they've been misguidedly operating under. As a result, they will throw off their chains and refuse to engage in the practices and beliefs which make them subordinated. Or at least they will recognise that they are complying with oppressive norms. The false consciousness analysis has frequently been employed in the fight for gender equality. This method has shown that many gendered beliefs which attribute characteristics and attendant practices as inherent to one gender are false. For example, second wave feminists use false consciousness arguments implicitly and explicitly to debunk all kinds of myths, myths such as the happy housewife. Similarly, views which were once widely held, for example, that only men understood the public sphere and therefore only men were permitted to vote, or that only men were intelligent enough to be doctors and lawyers have been systematically rejected. Key to these projects of emancipation was the practice of consciousness raising, which showed that claims that men had inherent skills and capacities that women did not were false. Consciousness raising was the tactic of the women's liberation movement, which had its zenith in the 60s and 70s. This version of feminism has been critiqued for universalizing the experience of white middle-class women. And in the years since, feminism has sought to be overtly inclusive and diverse and intersectionality is now a watchword. Yet this period of second wave feminism was vibrant and on many topics, consciousness raising was exceptionally effective. Women and society more broadly did recognize that many gendered practices were not the natural order, nor were they justified. Essentially, the false consciousness analysis worked. It showed that such gendered practices were products of patriarchy used to subordinate women and often to keep women secluded in the private sphere. Key second wave feminist texts, which give this flavor, a flavor of this movement include, and these are wonderful texts, and I should have put that slide up earlier, so apologies, these texts. Women hating, sexual politics, the dialectic of sex, and the feminine mystique, all of which you should read if you haven't, because all of which still have things to teach us. In the opening of Women Hating, Andrea Dworkin's explicit about the role of her book as a consciousness raising method, a way of recognizing unjust gender norms and as a way to change behavior. So in Women Hating, she describes the process saying, we recognize that all of our social behavior as learned behavior that functioned for survival in a sexist world. We painted ourselves, smiled, exposed legs and ass, had children, kept house as our accommodations to the reality of power politics. This view that engagement in beauty practice and bodywork is false consciousness persists in philosophy, although it is more assumed than argued for. That beauty is assumed to be a default form of false consciousness is shown, for example, by Natalie Stolger's use of it as a paradigmatic example of a deformed desire of preference. So she cites in her Stanford Encyclopedia article 
Benson's example of a college student deluded into thinking that appearance is important. Consider the 18-year-old college student who excels in her studies, is well-liked by her many friends and acquaintances, leads an active, challenging life, yet she regularly feels bad about herself because she does not have the right look. So on top of everything else, she expends a great deal of time and money trying to straighten or curl her hair, to refine her cosmetic technique, to harden or soften her body, and so on. That the student is deluded is assumed to be obviously true. The position is not argued for, but stated. Stoljar continues that the student's desire for an excessive number of beauty treatments is deformed because it is the product of adopting values that are oppressive to her. And it is a desire that she would not have absent of the oppressive conditions. Absent then of the oppressive conditions, the desire would disappear. In this model, those who engage in appearance work are deluded or tricked. Sometimes described in literature as dupes or dopes. Yet when we explore it, it is not obvious that false consciousness is in play. For the false consciousness analysis to work, two claims must be true. First, it must be wrong to believe that beauty engagement, and here remember I am including broader body modification and bodywork practices, is beneficial. And second, engagement must function as a means to differentiate the classes, in this case, men and women, and to mark one as inferior. Neither of these claims can be sustained. Third then, the claim that women do not benefit from engagement and they are duped or tricked into thinking they do. The mere fact that women and mass have not stopped engaging in appearance work despite the longevity and prominence of this position might give proponents of the position pause for thought. Other feminist claims of this type did resonate and did lead to culture change. Women and society more broadly has rejected the view that men are the clever sex or uniquely able to manage in the public sphere. Consciousness raising worked. This didn't happen for appearance, so either women did see benefits from engagement or they regarded the harms and costs of giving it up as too high. So if resistance is too costly, this does not undermine the false consciousness analysis. An individual could recognise engagement is oppressive but nonetheless continue. But it would make resistance a tactic that is unlikely to succeed. So for now, I want to consider the benefits. There are some demonstrable benefits. For example, Hammamish talks of a beauty premium and ugly penalty, documenting a 17% difference in earnings between good-looking and bad-looking men. Psychological studies suggest that there is a correlation between being regarded as attractive and being treated more positively. The halo effect is well documented and leads attractive individuals to being assumed to have positive personality traits such as friendliness, competence and intelligence. These benefits are very short-lived. For instance, they improve your chances of getting a first date or being called back for interview, but to succeed once in a relationship or in a job requires demonstrable skills and expertise. Nonetheless, some material wards rewards do attach to appearance. As Nancy Etkoff states, beauty conveys modest but real social and economic advantages. So some clear but modest benefits in terms of economic reward and relationship equity, if not nearly as much as popular culture would have us believe. In addition, some engagement is pleasurable. Some practices are intrinsically pleasurable, such as the caressing of oneself or others, or because beauty is positioned 
as self-care or me time in our particular cultural moment. Even practices which are not pleasurable in themselves, such as hair removal or cosmetic surgery, can feel empowering as they are a gentle act to improve the body, which is intimately connected with our sense of self. To dismiss such benefits as false is to ignore the lived experience of very many who do experience engagement in this way, even after they have been exposed to false consciousness critiques. As Ruth Holliday and Jacqueline Sanchez-Taylor point out, feminist discourses of victimization or internalized oppression are likely to alienate a generation of young women for whom sexual self-determination expressed through the glamorous body is a central component to identity associated with pleasure and success. So this does not mean we should not be critical of what are homogenizing and demanding norms. We absolutely should. We should also be critical of the language of empowerment, which is often a learned and slippery narrative. But it does mean that dismissing engagement simply as false consciousness is not good enough. People recognise that there are significant pressures to conform, they recognise there are harms attached to engagement, but they also recognise and experience the benefits and pleasures of engagement too. In addition to these individual benefits, there are all kinds of communal and social pleasures and benefits that at our current moment are attached to engagement. For example, bodywork and beauty practices sanction adult-to-adult -adult human touching in non-medical, non-sexual ways. Mothers spend hours braiding their daughter's hair, friends spend time doing each other's makeup, painting nails, painting henna, and so on. And for some, for instance, an elderly person in a care home, the only non-medical touch routinely available is that of the hairdresser or the beautician. A further communal benefit is that of social bonding. Beauty talk is often a means to establish and cement connection. It is friendship talk, a way to signal care, affection and admiration. So this type of bonding can be problematic and some find beauty talk excluding and alienating. But for many, very many, there is pleasure in these practices which enable connection with other women and across groups. So such benefits, of course, could be delivered in non-beauty ways. There's nothing intrinsic about beauty practices that makes this likely. But this would require significant social change for alternative bonding and touching practices to be developed. There are also times when beauty and appearance have been empowering to groups. For example, the slut marches are very potent symbols which seek to reclaim sexy bodies. And the Afro was very deliberately embraced as a symbol of black empowerment by the civil rights movement. A final thought regarding the pleasures of appearance is that adornment might be a basic human pleasure. Stephen Davis's first sentence of his book Adornment reminds us that we homo sapiens are decorators. We adorn our bodies, clothing, possessions and environments. Adornment, he tells us, is ubiquitous. Eschewing bodywork, adornment and appearance enhancement altogether might be to lose something important and which contributes to flourishing. The claim that there are no benefits to bodywork and appearance enhancement is not true. Working on appearance is sometimes pleasurable and there are other benefits in terms of a positive sense of the self and many practices have social goods attached to them. While collectively we will be better off with a less demanding and more diverse appearance ideal, at this moment of time in a visual culture it is just not true to say there are no benefits. The second claim then of the false consciousness argument is that one class dominating class, in this case men, 
benefit from the power hierarchy. So Sheila Jeffries sums up this position in the following way. Beauty practices can reasonably be understood to be for the benefit of men. Though women in the West sometimes say they choose to engage in beauty practices for their own sake or for other women and not for men, men benefit in several ways. They gain the advantage of having their superior sex class status marked out and the satisfaction of being reminded of the superior status every time they look at a woman. They also gain the advantage of being sexually stimulated by beautiful women. These advantages can be summed up in the understanding that women are expected to both compliment and compliment men. Engagement then is intended to demarcate and differentiate, separating the superior class men from the inferior class women. It enforces a clear distinction as women do beauty and men do not. The superiority of men and the inferiority of women is established in a number of ways. Women are presented as complementing men by beautifying for them, making women secondary to and dependent on men's approval. Simultaneously, the skills and work which women have to master to succeed in beauty are devalued and cast as trivial. Skills which women, the inferior class, need, but men do not. Only women are valued for their superficial appearance, while men are valued for their intellect, earning power, physical prowess, provider status, and so on. Taken together, engagement marks women as different from men and enforces their inferior class status. In the contemporary context, neither of these claims is obviously true. And the second claim is empirically false, as engagement is no longer exclusively the preserve of any group. So in many contexts, beauty practices do continue to differentiate men and women. However, these differences are far less marked than they once were. For example, women's and men's clothing, at least in the West, is more interchangeable. It is now normal for women to wear what were traditionally regarded as men's clothes, most obviously trousers, and dress is far less policed by gender. Gender cannot be read automatically from appearance, and that this is the case is evidenced by the common practice of stating one's preferred pronouns. Wherever one stands on the controversial gender identity debate, it is not controversial to recognise that whether somebody engages in extensive bodywork and sets high value on appearance does not automatically reveal the gender. This said, in many contexts, the traditional binary genders are still assumed and frequently body modification and beauty practices do differentiate in this way. For example, modification often hypersexualizes, creating hyperfeminine women with exaggerated curves and butch and macho men. But, and importantly, beauty engagement and body work does not always and only differentiate between men and women. The claim that women do beauty, understood broadly as spending time, effort and care on appearance and men do not, or that women are defined by appearance and men are not, is empirically false. Sandra Bartsky's memorably stated that the art of makeup is the art of disguise, but this presupposes that a woman's face unpainted is defective. Soap and water, a shave and routine attention to hygiene may enough be enough for him, for her they are not. This, if we extended the claim as I have done from makeup to appearance modification and body enhancement is no longer true. If men too are being defined by appearance, then engagement in body work cannot mark them, cannot mark women as the inferior class. Men are engaging in appearance practices and body work in ever increasing numbers and valuing how they look. The harms of the rising demands of beauty and those of body image dissatisfaction and anxiety increasingly fall on all of us, irrespective of gender. 
a 2016 YMCA report ranked body image anxiety as the third most important issue for young people in the UK across genders. Statistics on eating disorders suggest that as many as a third of young sufferers are now male. Likewise, the 2010 Sexualising of Young People report details that boys are under pressure to display their semi-naked bodies in the virtual world. Men are doing body work, including diet, exercise, chemical and surgical interventions. For example, the BAPS report cites a rise in operations on men, termed the daddy makeover, including what they define as an ethic rise of 20% in male liposuction and a 13% jump in man boob reductions. The number of men feeling dissatisfied with their bodies and exhibiting body image anxiety is rising along with harmful consequences. So Naomi Wolf in her landmark book, The Beauty Myth, she jokes about the beauty ideal falling on men. She invites us to imagine penis implants, penis augmentation, foreskin enhancement, testicular silicone injections to correct asymmetry, saline injections with a choice of three sizes, surgery to correct the angle of erection, to lift the scrotum and make it pert. Her purpose by presenting these as laughable is to show how unimaginable it is that demands like these could fall on men in a parallel way to the way that they fall on women. Yet much of this has come to pass. Penis enlargement ad adverts fill our inboxes and Botox, described as Scrotox, is used to smooth testicles. If Brazil is at the top of the curve, beauty curve for men as it is for women, then the fact that men are the fastest growing demographic of cosmetic surgery recipients in Brazil might foreshadow a general trend for men to engage in cosmetic surgery. The false consciousness analysis relies on a class differentiation between men and women. For it to hold, Women must do beauty and men must not. But men are engaging in appearance work and suffering from body image anxiety. This doesn't mean there are no harms involved in engagement. They are, and these are real and rising, and some of them are highly gendered. But it does mean that the false continuity does not explain appearance engagement, and consequently the duty to resist cannot be grounded in false consciousness. There may be other reasons to argue for a duty to resist, but it's not the case, to rephrase McKinnon, that we recognise all of our beauty behaviour as learned behaviour and as accommodation to the reality of the power politics. Appearance work and attention on the body is not straightforwardly something that women do to benefit men without benefit to themselves. Even on the severest reading, the benefits of engagement cannot be reduced to simple man-pleasing or accommodations to patriarchy. Even if they could, which I have argued they cannot, this does not mean, as the false consciousness critique asserts, that women are deluded or duped. As Claire Chambers rightly states, people might autonomously choose to follow harmful norms because they believe they cannot access the desired benefit without complying with the norm. In some then, I have argued that appearance work has some intrinsic and instrumental benefits, though much less than the young believe, and that mere engagement does not distinguish women from men or mark them as inferior. In the rest of the paper, I give four further reasons to reject the notion that individuals have a duty to resist and argue that promoting resistance as a tactic to reduce the power of appearance norms is ineffectual. The first reason to move away from focusing on individual resistance is, as noted above, that the light bulb moment simply did not happen as it did for other issues. 
while there were women on both sides of the argument for women's votes or access to education, overall, the arguments for male superiority were ultimately rejected by social consensus. That it was false to think men were more intelligent, such that only they deserved the vote, or to practice in certain professions, this argument resonated. It chimed with what women knew to be true and across demographics. Working class women already knew they were equal to their men. They worked in the same fields and factories as well as doing the childcare. Middle class women knew they could out argue their brothers and so on. Once the sexism of the practices was called out, the argument was over. It was culture, not nature, that stopped women voting or working. That our practice has not yet caught up with our principles does nothing to change the success of the argument. Largely, it's accepted that inequality between men and women is sexist social practice, not innate difference. We no longer think the gender pay gap is justified, even if it has not yet been eradicated, just as we no longer think domestic violence is a domestic matter. When it came to appearance, there was no equivalent light bulb moment. As a response to demanding body ideals, the project of consciousness raising has manifestly failed. As other feminist goals have been attained, body work has not been rejected, but further embraced and embedded. As Cathy Peace notes in her History of Beauty, feminist critique has increased women's scepticism towards the beauty industry, but it has hardly stopped them from buying cosmetics, reading fashion magazines, trying out new looks, and sharing makeup tips with friends. Moreover, as discussed above, men too are engaging and increasingly like women to the extent they can afford. The Just Resist approach is a demonstrably failed project, irrespective of other reasons we should stop promoting it as a way to challenge harmful beauty norms. To repeat, I am not advocating engagement, not at all, but I am suggesting that individual engagement should not be the focus of activism. The second reason to resist the Just Resist approach is that the call to resist engagement is individual and individual in problematic ways. In second wave individualism, I think it was less, sorry, in second wave feminism, I think it was less individual than it is now. When second wave feminists were first making these claims, resistance had some prospect of success. Appearance critiques tapped into the bigger women's liberation movement and were part of a larger pattern of resistance. Rejecting beauty as a private and trivial pursuit was part of rejecting the relegation of women to the private sphere. It is not hard to imagine how, in that context, rejecting beauty engagement would feel empowering. Appearance work was private, like housework and homemaking, and was categorically only women's work, designed to trivialise and privatise women's experience. Set in the wider women's liberation context, growing body hair and rejecting constraining garments and beauty regimes could well have felt collective and empowering. But this moment has largely passed. Resisting beauty norms is very rarely collective, usually highly individual, and this reduces the empowering elements of resistance. So there are attempts to make the rejection of beauty norms communal, for instance, body and fat acceptance movements, body positivity campaigns, and things like the January campaign that I will return to. The extent to which such campaigns actually challenge the beauty ideal rather than embed it further is open to question. But even if they make resistance less lonely, appearance resistance isn't an activity one does only some of the time. 
It is constantly on view, making everyone vulnerable when not in the activist space. Activist space. Activism for a cause usually focuses attention towards collective ends and away from individual preoccupations. Collective action induces feelings of solidarity, shared purpose, and being part of something bigger than oneself. A duty to resist is very different from other forms of activism. It draws attention to individuals' bodies. Unlike some other forms of resistance, appearance resistance is obvious at a glance. The bare face shows, the undyed hair shows, the wrinkles, the jowls, the fat show. Similarly, engagement shows, the red lips, the dyed hair, the injected lips, the changed body shape. Where one stands is always visible. It is written on your body and often obvious before you speak or communicate in any other way. The focus on individual resistance encourages judgment of others' bodies and as we assess the extent to which they engage. It also likely increases anxiety and self-consciousness about our own bodies. Only by assessing ourselves and others can we tell who is resisting and who isn't. The focus on individual resistance increases the focus on appearance and encourages criticism and judgment. This does nothing to challenge demanding beauty norms, but focuses attention on individual bodies and their personal engagement or lack of engagement. Resistance is an awful lot to ask of individuals and the ask becomes more demanding as our culture becomes more visual, particularly for the young. Images are more dominant than ever before, and as our world is more virtual, it becomes even more visual and the circle continues. Ultimately, the individual ask turns out to be self-defeating and destructive of collective action. The third argument against the duty to resist is that it induces negative emotions of shame and blame. We fat shame. We are disgusted by visible body hair. We are routinely ashamed of our appearance failures. We blame people when they don't engage and we blame them when we do. For instance, women were blamed in the PIP scandal and botched surgery has become entertainment. Shame and blame are evident across appearance discourses, no matter what one does or, do, does or don't, doesn't do. And that these emotions attached to appearance is regarded as normal and even inevitable. In fact, we regard it as slightly odd when we are not concerned ashamed or anxious about some part of our body. In childhood, we learn to routinely shame bodies to the extent that physical appearance is the number one reason why people bully. Appearance bullying is by far the most prevalent form of bullying in our schools. From as young as three, we attach negative qualities such as laziness to fat people. Being silenced by shame is not only individually painful, but it reduces effective action. As Cressida Hayes puts it, it is a silencing gambit. Shame can be reduced, can be induced even when the motive is good and there is an attempt at collective action. And this brings me back to the January campaign. So this campaign was begun by students at Essex University. It challenged women to grow their body hair for the month of January. Its stated aim was to convince women to love and accept their bodies while raising money for charity. And no doubt this felt incredibly empowering for those engaged. So this is the nearest you get to collective action. But the result might not have been what the students intended. The media coverage all highlighted the young students' bodies, which despite their body hair, fell very 
clearly within the normal and acceptable appearance range. The campaign only challenged one feature of the beauty ideal, the smooth feature. It did not challenge the other three features of thinness, firmness and youth. As such, it likely reinforced the overall dominance of the ideal as features can be traded off against each other. So campaigns like this, including many body, body positive campaigns, are very well intentioned, but they risk reinforcing rather than challenging the beauty ideal. They increase rather than reduce focus on bodies, again making the issue about individuals' bodies, individuals' engagement or non-engagement, and very rarely are they radically inclusive or diverse. So elsewhere, I have argued for a response which overtly rejects blame and shame. I have drawn on Iris Marion's Jung's account, which is emphatic about the corrosiveness of blame, stating that blame usually produces defensiveness and unproductive blame switching. As Virginia Bloom states, we need to transcend feminist criticisms of body practices that can wind up being as shaming as the physical imperfections that drove us to beautify in the first place. As though some of us are superior to the cultural machinery, while others desperately fling ourselves across the tracks of cultural desire. We need to stop shaming and blaming individuals for appearance engagement or lack of engagement. It does nothing to challenge the appearance ideal and much to exacerbate the already extensive harms. The fourth and final reason that we should reject both an individual duty to resist and resistance as a tactic to challenge dominant appearance norms is that not only does it divide individuals, but it divides problematically on hierarchies of power. It assumes that non-engagement is a simple choice and fails to recognise that the possibility of resistance depends on context, class and privilege. As appearance becomes more important and connected to identity, rejecting body work becomes harder. Very few of us have absolutely no concern for being thin, firm, smooth and young. And those who do resist and reject engagement very rarely do so as individuals, but rather we do so as part of a protected community. It is much easier for professors of philosophy to reject beauty norms than it is for barmaids or retail workers. For many, the choice to resist isn't a live one. For example, in Brazil, increasingly there is talk of a right to beauty and cosmetic surgery is regarded as a form of public health and is generally agreed that the poor should be able to access such procedures. The maid as much as the mistress is the common saying. When other options for advancement are not available, appearance, irrespective of gender, may become relatively more important. And there is evidence that the poorest do prioritise appearance. To suggest that such individuals choose to engage and those with more privilege choose as individuals not to, is disingenuous. Calls to resist fail to recognise the fundamentally communal nature of appearance norms. The demands of body work are rising, are rising across demographics, but they do not rise in uniform ways. They fall more heavily on those who are not privileged in terms of class, education and race, and less of those who are protected by privileged communities and who have alternative ways to access the goods of the good life. To ignore the fundamental communal nature of beauty norms and the place of power and privilege in shaping the life choices of individuals is simply unethical. So to conclude, individuals don't have a duty to resist engagement and promoting individual resistance does not challenge demanding appearance norms, but strengthens them. 
False consciousness does not explain engagement. Instead, it obscures the actual power dynamics of appearance, which are far more complicated than women's subordination by men, and it ignores lived experience. Indeed, one might think that it is false consciousness to focus on individual engagement and non-engagement at all. Moreover, as a tactic, resistance has been proved to fail. It is individual, it increases attention on bodies, divides and silences women, and induces shame and blame. Moreover, it is unethical as it fails to recognise the complex power relations which surround appearance in an increasingly visual culture. So there are serious harms which are the consequence of the current globally dominant and demanding ideal. And if we continue on our present trajectory, then extensively modified bodies will become normal and required. If we want to loosen the hold of this ideal, working together to make a kinder and more inclusive, less body shaming and more body celebrating culture is more likely to deliver than focusing on a response which focuses on what individuals do or do not do to their own bodies. Thank you.